Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. My name's Andy, sitting next to me is Floki, our bearded dragon mascot, and sitting opposite me is a Liam. We're back. Yes, sir. It's good to see you again. Good to see you too. It feels weird. It's like I know it's only been like what a fo- well a fortnight since we last recorded, but it just feels it always feels so out of whack. Yeah, yeah, it completely throws <laughs> you off, doesn't it? Uh, once again, uh, as usual, once we're coming back from a break, uh, apologise for any ropiness yeah. in advance because it does take us a little bit to get back into the swing of things. You wouldn't think it we're would. We're both still drunk, <laughs> <laughs> working on it, working on it. Yeah, but uh, no, very very good to be back. I'll tell you how off kilter it put me actually. I got up this morning and did as I usually do, you know, messaged you, put the podcast together, what we're going to review, all that kind of stuff. Put the trivia together, got the premium sorted out, what we're going to do later. Sat back and went, hey, well, that's done. I went about the rest of my day and I realized about half an hour before you came over that I hadn't done any news. Oh. Which is the thing we start off the podcast with. (laughs) Um, And so I've put something, thankfully, because I've been away for so long, there's a fair bit of news. Oh, that's good. And uh, yeah, well, let's get going, shall we? Because it's moderately exciting news. I've got a first article here that I think is going to make you very happy. Okay. I've deliberately put it first because I want to kick off on a high note, you know, get some energy in the room. Cool. Okay, let's go. So this first article here, this is from empireonline.com. Adam Sandler reuniting with uncut gems duo, the Safdie brothers. Oh, Mm. well, that is good. Have you seen any of their stuff yet? Yes, yeah, yeah. I, I did like, um, what was that one with Robert Pattinson where I wasn't a fan of Robert Pattinson but I loved the film? You're talking about Good Time? Yeah, Good Time. Yeah. yeah, yeah did yeah. you see Uncut Gems? I did see Uncut Gems. I like that very much too. Awesome. Yes, I am enjoying the Safety Brothers. And yes, Adam Sandler, by far his best performance. Yeah, 100%. Gems. Um, he received some of the best reviews of his career for good reason, thanks to his work with filmmakers Benny and Josh Safdie on 2019's Uncut Gems. So it's not surprising to learn that he's reuniting with them for another film. Talking to Entertainment Weekly, Sandler let slip that he'll star in another movie for the directing brothers, although naturally preferred to keep the details quiet for now. They're working hard on it, Sandler says. Their work ethic is bananas. They're always working, always writing, always thinking. I don't know what I can tell you, but it's going to be very exciting. It's different. But I don't want them to ever say, what the hell do you tell him that for? So I'll just let them talk about it. Uncut Gems for Sandler as Howard Ratner, motormouth New York City jeweler, ba- basketball fan, and compulsive gambler who gets into real trouble. Before that, though, he has likes of sports comedy drama, blah, 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 blah. Adam Sandler's done a lot of work. Most of it not very good. But yes. No, but well, that's the thing. I mean, I've... I've yet to um, become a Safdie completist because I've, I mean, I've seen Heaven Knows What, which is great. Good Time and Uncut Gems are both absolutely brilliant, but they've got a couple of films like earlier in their filmography, which I haven't checked out yet. But seeing their um, the, their progression chronologically of those three movies mentioned, I mean, these guys are just incredible filmmakers. Am, am I and, wrong as well? I'm, I'm sure you'll correct me here, but it seems like it's been a while since they actually released anything together. They've been cropping up in a lot of other people's movies, I've noticed, as little bit parts and almost cameos, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah, well, well I mean, uh, Benny, oh shit, I can't remember if it's, but no, I think it's Benny um, who was, uh, he turns up in Licorice Pizza, he has like a yeah. sort of central cameo in that. Um, well, Uncut Gems obviously came out in 2019. So, yeah, it's been three years since they've released anything. I mean, I, I believe that it's actually, they've gone through sort of three years because heaven knows what was 2014. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was 2014. Good Time was 2017 and Uncut Gems is 2019. So, like, there's been like a three year and then a two year gap between their respective films to date. So, um, yeah, I mean, 
they're currently they're filming this. They're currently filming it though. They all Sandler has let go is they're working hard on it. They're working so hard. It could on be it, anyway. Yeah. That sounds like pre-production to me, rather than filming. But hey ho, you know. I mean, there's I haven't I've yet to see any of their work that I would put as less than stellar. I'll put it that. Well, way. they're great, and um, I mean, I fully agree with. I've seen people saying like, you know, the Safdie brothers. Um, you know, it's it's basically like they're bringing back new Hollywood, and it's some, that's something I would strongly agree with, and I'm very happy about. Was well, so, there something um, about them curating a Criterion collection or something like that? I remember showing you showed me a. Uh, well, I've YouTube seen video. I've seen them both in the closet, you know, like where they the both brothers go in and they they do all their Criterion picks. Mm. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm I'm not actually aware if they're um, directly curating any particular thing. I think that's what it was a lead up to, although I never saw what they actually curated. But yeah, film buffs through and through. Oh, one hundred percent, and, and, and uh, just so talented, and they get the best out of Sandler as well. Yeah, I'm a big fan of directing duos as well. I think it can really, yeah. really work. Um, you know, Coen Brothers being an obvious example. And, you know, there aren't that many, but I often like it when there's a directing duo because I feel like often one tempers the other. You know what I mean? It's Sometimes you can get films that are, although we rate like the concept of the auteur, I think sometimes it's better to have someone on the same level going, you sure about that shot? You know what oh, I mean? Oh, yeah, man. I mean, even Donkeys years ago, you know, fucking Powell and Pressburger, you know, like yeah. there's been loads of, you know, filmmaking duos, as you say. Yeah, there's a there's a sort of tempering element there. And by, and largely, the, um, the many uh, teams, many two-person teams have cracked out some unbelievably great work. So, yeah, very excited for whatever the Safdie brothers have next. I suddenly remember, wasn't it a um, married couple that did the Super Mario Brothers movie? I think it was, yeah. Perhaps married couples are a bad idea, just based yeah. off of that singular example. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I think there's sort of more danger there for, uh, you know, tre treading around the other person's ego carefully enough because you don't want to go with no shagging, do you? <laughs> <laughs> very, very true. <laughs> Sorry, crass but true. Yeah, right, yeah. Again, another tagline for our podcast. Apparently, they were. I, I read, I don't know if they've abandoned it, but apparently the Safties were working on... They were working on a reimagining of 48 hours. But yeah, I read something. But about I'm not that. sure if they're still going down that path. It sounds like they might be doing something completely different. Who knows? It might it might star Adam Sandler. Maybe that's what he's talking about. I guess we shall wait and see. Well, I mean, a 48 hours being remade usually makes me go, mm, but 48 hours being remade by the Safties with their sensibilities. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, if they are going to do it, I'd be desperate to see it. Mm. So, yeah. Nice lead-in, actually, to my second article, which is also from EmpireOnline.com. You can't tell I was Googling movie news quickly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is uh, John Woo now remaking The Killer for streaming service Peacock. It's been a weird old road for John Woo's plan to remake The Killer. Long in development, it has been through different versions across the years. Most recently, with Woo himself back to direct and Lupita Nyong'o starring... That iteration isn't happening, but the reboot itself is still alive with Wu attached, taking aim at streaming service Peacock. Wu's movie, which starred Chow Yun-Fat as a Hong Kong hitman who accidentally blinds an innocent woman during a hit and becomes determined to get her the medical treatment she needs while also completing one last job, was the director's bullet-flinging calling card for his later Hollywood career and became hugely influential. While we're still not really convinced the world needs a new version, Wu's involvement at least gives some confidence. Wu is currently filming revenge thriller Silent Night, which stars Joel Kinnaman and Catalina Sandino Marino. This is all part of Universal's push to have more original films debuting on Peacock. Debuting? Debuting. <laughs> I haven't read anything in a while. <laughs> including Shooting Stars, which charts basketball legend LeBron James' origin story and Praise This, starring Chloe Bailey. And I, I actually didn't know anything about Peacock. I imagine that's a US-only service. I'm yeah, unaware I'm of not it. familiar with that. But what do we think? 
about remakes being done by their original director. I sort of agree with the article in that it kind of takes the edge off of the, oh, I don't know if that's going to be well, a I mean, good there, idea. There, there's been times when it's been absolutely necessary. I mean, Michael Mann did it. He, yes. Um, he uh, sort of redeemed himself after that abysmal piece of dog shit LA takedown and turned it into Heat, which is one of the best films ever made. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, other times where it doesn't make any sense, like, I mean, I'm a big Michael Haneke fan, love the 1997 Funny Games he did a shot for shot remake in the states. Seems utterly pointless to me. Like I saw the remake, I just didn't. It's just the same thing, but a little bit more Americanized. It was pointless. But yeah, it can be sort of there. There's times where it, there can be a sort of utmost necessity to it, and other times where you think, well, why? Why did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Again, as usual with the news, it's a wait and see jobby, but. John Woo going back to, I mean, I do like The Killer. Are you a fan of The Killer? It's Chow Young Fat, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, it's a good movie. Yeah, and sort of, uh, there's a strong influence of, you know, like uh, Le Samurai, the uh, Melville film with Alain Delon in there. It's, no, it's a, it's a cool and um, very immersive crime film and character study. I'll, yeah, it's good. I did feel that with some of Woo's later work that he's sort of too reliant on his like auto stereotypes, you know, the, the doves flying and all that kind of stuff and a slow motion dive downstairs. Well, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that people make fun of when it comes to face-off. Yeah. It's just like, you know, like uh, Travolta and Cage kind of like, you know, battling each other and lots of slow-mo and all these fucking doves everywhere. So what are you doing, man? <laughs> yeah, hopefully he doesn't ruin the killer, but I will be very interested to give it a look. I might actually uh, re-familiarize myself with the original version. It's a good one. Mm, yeah, before I go and see this one and see, I often like to compare and contrast if someone's going to do something like that and see uh, what they took from the original and what they chose to uh, reimagine, so to speak. Well, I mean, yeah, ultimately it's just more interesting when it's the same director, isn't it? Because yeah. like you, because usually with remakes... You think, or at least I think, okay, this is someone coming in and they're, for better or worse, they're fucking with somebody else's vision. But if you're retreading where you you have been before, you obviously think that something needed tweaking. So, uh, yeah. Hmm. I just, um, yeah, I, I will definitely be interested to see that. Should be interesting to see, yeah. Different website. Hooray. Uh, Filmnews.co.uk. God, how we love filmnews.co.uk. Where would we get our news otherwise? Uh, Mike Myers hints at a possible fourth Austin Powers movie. Really? (laughs) Pretty much my reaction as well. Uh, Mike Myers has hinted that a fourth Austin Powers movie might be in the works. During an interview on Sirius XM's The Jess Cagle Show, the Wayne's World actor was asked if fans could expect to see him playing the spoof British spy in a fourth film almost 20 years after the release of the third. I would love to do one. I can neither confirm nor deny the existence or non-existence of such a project, should it exist or not exist, Myers replied, before saying more and then stopping himself. You know, we're, you know. Co-host Julia Cunningham said, it feels like yes, I'm sorry, it feels like you want to say yes, and added, it feels like a confirmation that it's going to be announced. Myers then responded that it was a non-confirmed confirmation confirmation. Oh, okay. That just made my head hurt. Yes, <laughs> I, reading it out made my head hurt, actually. I was certain I was going to stumble over that after debuting. But uh, yeah, would we be interested in a new Austin Powers film? No. No? I see, I wouldn't mind. I rate all, of, all three of the Austin Powers films in different levels of, of quality. But I found each one of them. I find uh, the you know the first one is very enjoyable and um, yeah yeah I mean I guess the, you know there's 
I actually saw Goldmember on TV the other night. And yeah, it's got some very funny moments. In it, I hope it? my stunt team is ready. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah it's, it's, they, they've all got some good moments. And, you know, Michael Caine turning up as Austin's dad is, is funny. But, well, you know. What's that great line? Um, there's two things I can't stand. Racial People are intolerant of other people's cultures in the Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, great delivery. And it is a very funny line. Well, it's... It, uh, to clarify, is it something that I'm going to be personally excited about? Not really, but I mean, I'll, I'll see it and hopefully it's, well, it's replete with comedy. <laughs> One can only hope. That would be the, you know, yeah, just to be, not to be redundant about it. Put well. it this way, it'd be weird if it was a kitchen sink drama. Yeah, yeah. although again, I would watch it. <laughs> Is that what is that our meme like? This 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 is mo one thing that's undeniable. This is most definitely a film. Yeah. You know, it has a coterie of actors. And <laughs> Perhaps if you brought Gary Oldman into direct, and then you could get an Austin Powers nil by mouth crossover. You know, that might be uh, that might be exciting. Like Ray Winston looking like he's just burst out of like a Carnaby Street party, just going <laughs> like you cat, you fucking cat. <laughs> And Mike Myers is just like, crikey, that's not cricket. I tell you what should be added actually to any Austin Powers film though is Kathy Burke. I feel Kathy like, Burke. I feel like Kathy Burke improves everything she's ever been in. Yeah, that would be really good fun, actually. Apart from Gimme, 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 which couldn't be saved by anybody. But there you go. Gimme, Gimme, Gimme. Yeah. Bloody hell, I remember my mum used to watch that. That's a blast from the past, isn't it? Yeah, Jesus Christ. The yes. only unfunny thing she's ever done, but it wasn't her fault, it was the writing. <laughs> Someone's going to point out that she wrote it now and I'm going to feel really bad. <laughs> I'm assuming she didn't write it. She's a very funny woman. Anyway, anyway. And yes, my last article this week, uh, Tom Cruise's The Mummy director calls film the biggest failure of my life, personally and professionally. <laughs> this is an article on Variety.com. <laughs> I mean, it, it was pretty awful, but I feel like this guy is really actually, <laughs> it seems to have been a downer in his life. Uh, Alex Kurtzman has called his 2017 directorial effort The Mummy the biggest failure of my life, both personally and professionally. The Universal-backed adventure tentpole starred Tom Cruise and was designed to jumpstart the studio's Dark Universe, a franchise of interconnected films based on classic Universal monster movies. The Mummy was universally panned by film critics and grossed $410 million worldwide, effectively killing the studio's franchise hopes. I mean, I'd say $410 million worldwide is fairly good for most films, but obviously they were hoping to do an MCU kind of thing here. Yeah. He said... Um, I tend to subscribe to the point of view that you learn nothing from your successes and you learn everything from your failures, Kurtzman recently said on the Playlist's Bingeworthy podcast. And The Mummy was probably the biggest failure of my life, both personally and professionally. While Kurtz says there's about a million things I regret about The Mummy, he also maintained that it gave me so many gifts that are inexpressibly beautiful. I didn't become a director until I made that movie, and it wasn't because it was well-directed. It was because it wasn't. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to make those mistakes because it rebuilt me into a tougher person and it also rebuilt me into a clearer filmmaker. See, I kind of like this. Well, then, like, surely saying that it was the, like, the, the your, your biggest failure personally and professionally. I mean, I'm not trying to be obtuse. I'm, I'm not, you know, being obtuse. I'm not intending to be obtuse here. But if you actually took the positive message, the, the message that should be taken, the lesson that should be taken, that failure go, you know, is intertwined with success. It's not its polar opposite. And you've actually learned all these valuable lessons. Then it doesn't, that doesn't sound like the lowest point you could possibly be at. No, I, I, I kind of like this. I kind of like it when a director turns around and for a film that was obviously not very good, 
And rather than defends it in the classic Michael Bay way of going, well, I had a good time, so fuck you. To turn around and go, yeah, no, it didn't work out the way I wanted, but yeah, sorry, everyone. Never mind. I'm going to keep, you know, tr- check out my next film. We'll see if it's, a, you know, if it's any better. I kind of like that. I kind of like it when a filmmaker's being honest. It doesn't sound um, press released. Well, yeah, I mean, all I mean, the greats started somewhere. Yeah. Well, 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 watch, um, watch the very first films that Kubrick ever made. They're pretty shit. Yeah, didn't he hate, <laughs> um, oh, was it Wrath of Glory? Or uh, I can never remember the title. No, yet. no, no, not Paths of Glory. Paths fucking Glory. outstanding. Oh, he didn't like it, apparently. He was uh, not well, a fan uh, of that film. Killer's, Killer's Kiss and um, some other piece of shit that he made before that, they are ropey as all hell. But then he became one of the greatest filmmakers that's ever existed. There's a great article as well. If you Google uh, Joel Schumacher and um, the Batman and Robin saga, there's a fantastic article where Joel himself talks about everything that went wrong with this movie, why everyone hated it. He wasn't happy with it. It was studio interference. The sets were way too big and it was just too expensive. And he basically dissects and autopsies his own bad movie. And I always find that really, really interesting. Yeah, I always think... uh, yeah, just sort of lends a credibility, you know, to turn around and go, yeah, it wasn't very good, was it? But, you know, this is what happened and uh, and I've learned a lot and I'm moving on. I think that's a great thing. It's turn a negative into a positive, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it's a cartoonishly awful film. So, I mean, I would be interested to see what he originally had in mind. No one's ever forgotten those back nipples, I'm telling you. No, no. Anyway, anyway, I'm, I'm very excited for Liam's reviews this week because he's got a couple of huge ones and I'm very, very intrigued. So uh, please do kick us off, my friend. What have you got? Well, um, got two new biggins. I think, you know, just arbitrarily, I'm going to work backwards here. I'm going to do the one that I saw most recently first and then the one that I saw before that next. Sure, why not? <laughs> talking talking about logic. making people's heads hurt. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I, on Bank Holiday Monday, just gone, I toddled off to the local cinema house and I uh, tuned into The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. So hey. this is a new one from director Tom Gormican. And uh, yeah, I've been sort of anticipating this one for a while because uh, this stars Nicolas Cage as Nicolas Cage. It's um, batshit insane meta action comedy where uh, Nick, Nick Cage plays himself or at least a, you know, a thinly fictionalized version of himself. And in a nod to, um, so, you know, real life... Um, Truisms that I, don't, I think he is—he's been very open about his career. Is he's got to a point where his career is more or less in the crapper. He doesn't really have a lot of money. He's made a lot of bad decisions. Um, he keeps getting these offers that he doesn't want to take, and um, he's kind of alienated himself from his daughter Addie because uh, Nick Cage in the film, as he is in real life, um, is a sort of a, a very intense. Um, so almost like running on empty cinephile, you know, he, he talks, um, he talks very manically and excitedly about films he loves. And there is early in the film, there's a bit where he's doing a joint therapy session, him and his daughter, Addie, you're talking to, um, a counselor and, um, <clears throat> he talks about how he showed his daughter the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which is, you know, obviously a very famous, um, silent German film from, uh, I think it was, was it 1921. Uh, 1922, I can't fucking remember. But um, 
the, the therapist asks Addy, like, what did you think of the film? And Nick just proceeds to hijack it and talk about why he loves it so much in that very frenetic cage fashion. So, um, yeah, he's, he's right out the gate. He's sort of poking fun at the fact that his career has gone in some um, not so desirable uh, directions and it's his family life has been affected as well because he, he is quite a brash impulsive guy who you know to some degree has a little bit of myopia but he means well and he's trying to do the right thing and he really wants to get back on board and do something really good and um while he's sort of milling around trying to get parts that he wants and trying to give it his all he is uh tormented by nikki which is um, his alter ego. And it's actually, it's Nicolas Cage, but de-aged. And the de-aging technology, I've got to say, it's not actually half bad. Oh, is it's, this the first actual decent use of de-aging technology? You know what? It, it really doesn't, it doesn't actually look that bad at all, but they've de-aged, it's like they've de-aged Nicolas Cage about 30 years because they bet Nicky, um, they've based it on um, Nicolas Cage's appearance on the Cherry Wogan show where his hair was all over the place and he was like bare-chested but he had a biker jacket and he was coming out doing cartwheels and kung fu kicks oh, and everything. Oh, I remember that interview, yeah. And he yeah. sits down on the sofa and he, just, and he just doesn't stop. He's just utterly nuts for the whole interview. And they've based the, yeah, his de-aged alter ego, Nicky. Um, he just turns up at random and, uh, you know, you have Nick Cage saying, like, you know, I want to be taken seriously as an actor. And Nicky's just like, you're not an actor. You're a movie star. You're Nick fucking Cage. And all that sort of, yeah. So it's really amping up um, the sort of how sort of beloved Nicolas Cage is in the public eye, in the popular culture, but just how unique of a guy he is. So um, one day he's talking with his agent, uh, Richard, played by Neil Patrick Harris. And he says, I've got a way for you to make a swift million dollars, you know, because it's not that I've necessarily got any exciting roles coming up for you, but I know that you're in a lot of debt. I know that your rent is behind. You've been living in this hotel for however many months you owe him about half a million dollars. I know I can take, give you a way to make a straight million so you can sort of take some of the, you know, obligational stress off your back. So what it is, it's like, well, there's a guy, a very wealthy guy, he's a billionaire and he has a private island. And he is a an enormous fan of yours. You're like his favorite person in the whole world. And he is hosting a birthday bash there soon. And he would very much like you to fly out there early and be the guest of honor, but also spend some time just hanging around with him, like, you know, letting him show you around and just kind of getting to know him. Immediately, Nick Cage is like, what the fuck? No, this sounds weird. I don't want to do this. But then... Is he tries to put together a few other things and it falls through the cracks. So he decides, okay, I'll do it. And um, <clears throat> he, uh, he, get, he gets flown out there and he meets um, said billionaire, Harvey Gutierrez, played by Pedro Pascal, who uh, up to this point, I had only known as Prince Oberyn from Game of Thrones. And the Mandalorian, of course. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> fucking idiots. <laughs> well, it's because he rarely takes his fucking helmet off. That's true. So, yeah, so, uh, pretty much never. Yeah, so yeah. Sorry. Pedro Pascal, the wonderful Pedro Pascal of uh, Thrones and Mandalorian fame, he plays Harvey Gutierrez. And uh, yeah, and he is just, this man is just enamored with Nicolas Cage. He has this absolute fawning adulation. Um, he, he, there's one point in the film where he talks about how him and his dying father, they bonded 
the most they ever had in their life because they were looking at a TV screen in the hospital that the father was getting treatment in and they saw guarding Tess on TV, which is, I wouldn't exactly call it one of the highest points of Nick Cage's career, but they were just like, this man was so incredible. And he's just like, yeah, just Cage is a god to him. And, you know, they spend some time getting to know each other and, you know, Cage announces a sort of reluctant retiring from acting and Harvey's like, no, you can't do it. You bring happiness to millions. You know, he's sort of uh, uh, asserting that Cage is almost this this man of like mythical supernatural talent and he has this gift that is unrivaled by, like he's rivaled by nobody and he can't do it. And so they get to know each other and, and, it's, and it is quite fun, zany, and there's good chemistry there. Um, but then in a batshit development, Cage is contacted by... Um, woman named Vivian, played by Tiffany Haddish, who works with the CIA, and she tells him that Harvey is actually a murderous drug cartel baron and kidnapper and extortionist, and he's just abducted the daughter of this influential politician, and they need Nick Cage to basically be their man on the inside and help them foil the dastardly shenanigans of this man whom he is a guest of. And uh, yeah, that's about as batshit as I expected. Yeah, so Nick be, uh... Nick Cage on the island home of a supervan, complete with a private little museum where it's got everything. It's got like a fucking statue of uh, Nick Cage's Castor Troy with the two gold plated pistols from Face Off, the chainsaw from Mandy, posters of Con Air. It is like a big mad love letter to Nick Cage's filmography, and uh, yeah, just a, a, a kind of you know a, a meta. A, you know, a fun meta poke at, um, you know, just how he is beholden by so many people. Yeah, mixed in with this absolutely batshit crazy CIA action plot. Now, when I first read the synopsis of this, I was under the impression that he was he said he was going to be channel, channeling his most iconic characters. See, I was under the, I was like under the impression that he was actually going to sort of costume up as various people like Castor Troy, Cameron Poe, what have you. That doesn't actually end up happening, but it didn't actually, it didn't really sort of drain my enjoyment from the film. I mean, it's a it's a utterly batshit crazy movie, but if you're a fan of Nicolas Cage, it was essentially tailor-made for you. And it's, it's, it is very zany. There's a couple of jokes that didn't land, but what I think the film does very well is that, number one, it does have gags that do land very well. And also, it's got some incredibly sweet moments as well. When they deal with uh, Nicolas Cage trying to patch things up with his estranged daughter and his ex-wife, you know, trying to make himself a better person, and um, him and Harvey getting to know each other, uh, or Javi, sorry, getting to know each other better and bonding over you know, film predominantly, but also just finding things they have in common. There's a, there's actually a lot of real sweetness there, and it's quite nice. And, um, like, you you never hear of uh, Paddington 2 being hailed as, like, one of the most moving films you've ever seen, but they make a decent case for it. <laughs> you know, I've, I've yet to see it, but, you know, apparently so. It is actually quite moving. Yeah, yeah, they said it, yeah. Yeah, yeah there, there, are, there, is, there are a couple of great moments um, referencing that particular movie. But, yeah, Unbearable Weight, um, it is a film that will create expectation. It will create a, an enormous amount of expectation and it would be impossible for the film to fill all of it. But it's got some very good moments. Nicolas Cage is on great form. You can tell he's having he's having great fun doing this. 
just this, I mean, whoever came up with this idea is batshit crazy, but in a way that's sort of very, um, very stimulating. Very good uh, chemistry with Pedro Pascal. As I said, I didn't think every single gag landed, but a lot of them do. There are some really good comic beats. It's really silly and crazy. And uh, yeah, I, I, I had good fun with it. It made me smile. It made me laugh. Very pleased to hear it. Yeah, so, I'm yeah. looking forward to this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Check it out, man. It's um, it, it's it's definitely worth an evening's watch. And then next up, The Northman, the third film from Robert Eggers. Now, this one has obviously been wildly anticipated by so many people for, well, ages now. I mean, I think he announced he was developing it a co- maybe a couple of years ago. It's got to have been that at least. I've been sharpening my axe in anticipation. Yeah, you know how I love a yes. Viking piece. Robert Eggers, who is um, many a critical and sort of general movie fan's darling because of his quite striking um, visual techniques and uh, sort of rather spooky and elliptical approach to storytelling. He is, yeah, he finally released his long-awaited Viking revenge saga. So this sells um, Alexander Skorsgård as uh, Amleth, Prince Amleth. It's set in the year 1895 AD. And um, yeah, Prince Amleth, who is the young son of uh, Viking chieftain Urvadil, I think it's that's it. Urvadil, yeah, Urvadil. That king, sounds like a brand of bleach. Yeah, King Urvadil or Urvadil. I love by, the attempt to yeah. say short or Norwegian, Play, Scandinavian accent. Well, we you know, I'm going to elaborate on that in a minute. Okay, okay. Uh, played by Ethan Hawke and um, King. Or Overdill or whatever his fucking name is, has just come <laughs> has just come back from an expedition, and he's over the moon to see his young son Amleth and his wife Gudrun, played by Nicole Kidman. Amleth is you know spending some time with his father um, Overdill and and um, Gudrun. They talk about he talks about how much he's he's missed her, and uh, he's talking about how um, he's got ambition in his heart. He's got high hopes for his boy. And, um, you know, he's just, uh, he's, he's a bit world weary and battle weary, but he wants to sort of take things in a new direction. And one night he goes with Amleth and they go and they, they do some sort of shamanistic ritual where they act like wolves or wild dogs. Right off the bat, it's your sort of classic Robert Eggers bat shittery. And um, they're kind of just, yeah, just, just milling about, just doing the family thing. Um, and then we're introduced to um, Fjolnir, who is um, Irvadil's brother, played by Klaus Bang, who is a really excellent actor. I spoke about him um, in, during one premium because he was the main dude in the square. Um, yeah, Fjolnir, who is, yeah, Alvadil's rather envious and sort of malignant brother who seems to um, resent his brother for, well, for the fact that he's married to Gudrun, for the fact that he's a respected uh, Viking king or chieftain or whatever the fuck you want to call him. And, uh, yeah, there is some uneasiness and, and um, you know, acrimony there. One day, things come to a head, and uh, Fjolnir ends up killing Urvadil, and um, he orders the murder of young Amleth. But Amleth manages to escape. He manages to run to the shoreline, of um, his family's island peninsula. And he gets in a rowboat and he fucks off out of there. And uh, Fjolnir drags Queen Gudrun and slings her over his shoulder and intends to make her his wife. And as Amleth is rowing away, he keeps saying, I will avenge you, father. I will rescue you, mother. I will kill you, Fjolnir. So, like, this young boy is already committed to, um, well, preserving his own life, but also at some point in time avenging 
what has just been done to his family. We skip forward a couple of decades and we see Amleth rowing again, but this time he is on a boat with a large crew of men on it, all rowing, and he is played by the very tall, very muscular and intimidating Alexander Skarsgård. And um, he has become uh, just a brutal Viking raider. Um, they moor up by a village and they proceed to massacre the living shit out of this village. Um, Skarsgård is just, yeah, like just left, right and centre, just whacking and hacking. So, yeah, they take a few um, a few hostages. At one point, Amleth comes across a, uh, a, a female seer in um, mad sort of head garb, who is actually played by Bjork, who tells him that, you know, it, he is uh, destined to avenge his family's, um, you know, the fa- the destruction that was done to his family. But he's got to head a certain way, and the only way that he can head there is by jumping onto a slave ship, disguising himself as a slave. And this ship also contains a young Slavic woman named Olga, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, um, who has some, she has sort of uh, sorceress-like powers. He is taken on the slave ship to where he grew up, where um, his uncle, his brutal uncle Fjolnir, now reigns uh, supreme. And uh, yeah, they're taken there to be sold as chattel, as servants. And um, he it needs to find a way to essentially to utilise that position to, uh, as he said, to avenge his father, rescue his mother, and kill his brutal uncle. So, yeah, so you have Robert Eggers' very wild and dark Viking rendering of Hamlet and the Lion King. I was going to say, it's it's very, very Hamlet. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, apparently, I I thought that um, Amleth was... um, just a sort of, uh, you know, a, a nod to that. But apparently Amroth was actually a, a genuine Viking figure. So um, it just, I guess, you know, it, just, it actually works in reverse. I, th- I thought that it was something Robert Eggers made up. Interesting. Wasn't, yeah. Very interesting. So yes, yes. You have a, a Viking, a Norse revenge saga that is very Hamlet or, you know, the Lion King-like, if you want to go a bit more lowest common denominator in reference. <laughs> um, yeah, it's that that is the long and the short of it, essentially. Now, the thing with Robert Eggers... Um, he's made three films so far, and his very first one, The Witch, is one that he looks back on with some measure of regret because he believes that he didn't really know what he was doing. So f- having seen everything he's done so far, The Witch is still the one that I love the most. Um, the Lighthouse was okay, but I haven't really cared to revisit it, um, whereas I've seen The Witch about two or three times because I think it's extremely good. The Northman, it looks dazzling, but as the Donald would put it, it's got lots of problems. <laughs> and it does. First and foremost, people in this film, the bulk of the cast, they're doing this. It's sort of like an attempt to meld a Glaswegian and generic Slavic accent, and it sounds horrible. <laughs> Honestly. As soon as Ethan Hawke and Nicole Kidman opened their mouths, I was like, what the fuck are they doing? I'm sorry, these accents, they're they're distracting to the point where I was sort of coming out of, you know, being manifested vicariously to what's happening on screen. So, Nick, you know... Ethan Hawke just he's like doing this stupid this fucking thing but it's just but then he tries to sound Eastern European and I'm just like, oh god stop it stop it nails on a shortboard Nicole Kidman does the same thing 
Skarsgård, for the most part, retains his natural accent. Uh, which I was going to say you would expect. Yeah, which yeah, Well, I mean, he is from Sweden. And uh, Anya Taylor Joy again is. I'm sorry, the accents are they are distracting as fuck. They they really are, and they took me out of it. And they it made it made it difficult for me to invest care in these characters because I thought they sounded absolutely ridiculous. And I I haven't noticed a lot of people picking up on this. So I mean, unless I'm just being, um. I don't know, like unintentionally being an extreme nitpicker, because you know, it's it's not that's not a reputation that I want to home. But it it really took me out of it. it bothered me egregiously. These just dreadful fucking accents. On top of that, <clears throat> a lot of the film it really does plod along quite a bit. There are three or four scenes in this movie where I sat back and went, do you know what? That was fucking fantastic. That was really well done. It was so well shot. The choreography was brilliant. Um, the lighting was excellent. There was a lot of real viscera there. That was just, that was an incredibly well executed scene. And yeah, it occurs about three or about a push four times in a runtime of um, 140 minutes. This film, it has some phenomenal pacing issues. And I found myself really like, despite my hardest attempts, I found myself sort of zoning in and out now and again. Because there was just, there was some connective tissue that just felt like it was missing. It was just like kind of ambling along. And a lot of the performances were quite serviceable at best. And because it takes what is basically quite a rote story, you know, a, a, you know, a kid, kid is betrayed by a family member, comes back to get revenge. I mean, that is just, that is very basic. And the film, in the final analysis, it is rendered in that pretty basic way. Yes, it has... It, it, it has astonishing visual flair. The opening shot of the film, the opening, you know, the opening and closing shots are fantastic. They are really superb to look at, but the acting left a lot to be desired. Really just appalling accents. Even people, like, I, I love Ethan Hawke. I'm a massive Ethan Hawke fan. Like, I just, I just couldn't take, I, his character just sounded like a fucking idiot. <laughs> just like a growling sort of like, he sounded like the guy you would find our bus station in Glasgow at three o'clock in the morning growling at people. That's what he sounded like. It's very distracting. And yeah, I'm sorry, a lot of the film was boring. And The Witch, which is, uh, as I said, it's a film that Robert Eggers um, f feels somewhat embarrassed about. It's his first film, and I think that it's his best film because it's a slow burn. But that burn really build, it builds immaculately in my opinion, and it, and it crescendos into something really striking and really unforgettable and really well executed. And The Lighthouse, unfortunately, it seemed to be trying to do that, but it didn't do that. It didn't achieve what The Witch achieved. And The Northman, just, yeah, it, people are hailing it as this, oh, it's an incredible cinematic endeavour. No, it's not. It looks really cool. And there are some moments in the film that are really badass, very impressive. So it's, it's not, you know, Robert Eggers is a talented director, but it, there are so many other problems with it that, yeah, after I came out of The Northman, I was thinking, hmm, I, yeah, I feel pretty underwhelmed and I was really hoping for the opposite of that. But 
Yeah, it's... It, That's oh, a shame. I was really yeah. hyped for this pe- pe- People are going absolutely nuts over it. I don't, I don't think it's what it's cracked up to be at all. I really don't. I think it's... Um, I, I, I actually think it's pretty mediocre. Sorry. Well, yes, that's the worst word you can use. The the witch, the witch uh, from 2015, the witch, a New England um, folktale. I I love that film. I think it's an excellent horror film. And yeah, to date, it is Robert Eggers' best film. And uh, I just don't really know what he's doing. (laughs) You know, if he could just get back to the magic of that, that would be great. But yeah, sorry. Yeah, Northman was hyped for it. Nah, not that good. Oh, well, there you go. Okay, then. Well, in lieu of my usual uh, TV of the week segment, as you would expect, I don't know if I've mentioned it before on the podcast, but I've been away. (laughs) And um, I decided instead to do a couple of documentary pieces, one of which is a flat-out documentary film, and the other is a docuseries, both debuting on Netflix quite recently, and both quite interesting for very different reasons, I think. So there's a little bit of a compare and contrast going on here. Uh, The first of these made it straight into the Netflix top 10, Uh, It's called The Mystery of Marilyn Monroe, The Unheard Tapes. Oh, not heard of this one. Yeah, it's been uh, hanging around in the top 10. I think it came came out uh, just as I left, actually. And I think it's now on its decline in terms of viewership. But obviously, Marilyn Monroe, a very interesting and uh, and well-loved person and topic. Uh, So you sort of see why it would jump up the way it has Dead for 60 years this year. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, that's sort of what this is about, really. It's uh, directed by Emma Cooper. And it doesn't really focus on uh, Monroe herself as the primary subject. I mean, although she's obviously the actual subject of the documentary, it's told through the lens of this writer and journalist, Anthony Summers, who wrote a book entitled Goddess, which was published in 1985. And there was an inquest opened in 1982 uh, into Marilyn Monroe's death. Uh, was was it an overdose? Was it suicide? Or was it something even more nefarious? Of course, the, the famous official line is that she took an overdose of sleeping pills. And we'll never really know whether um, it was an attempt at suicide or simply a mistake because she was known to use sleeping pills habitually, that sort of thing. Yeah. So there was this inquest in 1982, essentially, I think, designed to put a lot of conspiracy theories to bed. Because there was all this speculation about was she murdered by the mob because of Jimmy Hoffa's association with the Kennedys. And she was obviously very intertwined with the Kennedys. Goes into all of that as well. But it comes at it from an interesting angle. Um, Anthony Summers was very, very interested in and covered the 1982 reopening of this inquest. Um, wrote his eventual book. And in, in his research for the book, he got all of these tapes together some of which that he recorded himself and some of which already pre-existed of people that knew Marilyn talking about her. And the documentary uses an interesting device where it's playing you the actual audio of these tapes. Um, Some of them are from her psychologist. Some of them are from the family of the psychologist. Some of them were actors that knew her. And some of them are just flat out, you know, friends and family and that sort of thing. And he's collated all of them together and tried to build this picture There's even a um, private investigator that he managed to interview who actually was the person who bugged Marilyn Monroe's house and also the Kennedy private beach residence where they held a lot of their parties. This is all sort of intertangled and entwined. And we also get, of course, Marilyn herself speaking, you know, from the grave almost. So I guess most of these people have probably passed on by now. But Marilyn herself is a constant voice throughout this documentary. When they're delivering the actual audio of these recorded tapes, they've actually got actors mouthing the lines 
are filmed through a sort of, I couldn't tell whether it was a digital effect or an actual cine camera, but that sort of grainy footage to try and place it in frame, you know, and put it in the context of the documentary, interspersed with actual archival footage. So it sort of leaps out in and out of reenactment and reality in a way that I found quite intriguing. And it goes in great detail at the end into a lot of the conspiracy theories surrounding her death and lands on an eventual conclusion, which... Um, I think a lot of people were expecting this to be scandalous in its revelations. There's certainly some of that. There's certainly some things through this documentary that I was unaware of. There were certainly some uh, unsolved mysteries and hanging threads still regarding her death and the circumstances leading up to it. But I think a lot of people were expecting a big reveal at the end. There's a couple of little ones, but it's not quite getting into full-on conspiracy theory level. I think this guy, Anthony Summers, essentially dedicated his life to debunking a lot of the conspiracy stuff, although he will admit that there is certainly something more nefarious than the actual public angle. Uh, yeah, this is a really interesting piece. It's quite morose. Yeah, It's quite sad and solemn. And I think that's right because the angle that it's coming at it from is that Marilyn Monroe's tale is morose. She came from a um, very deprived and, and broken background. She always described herself as a waif and that she didn't fit in. She was um, taken away to orphanages, even though she technically wasn't an orphan, that kind of thing. Um, she was described as very, very unhappy as a child. And her rise to fame, as you like, is sort of contrasted with the fact that she seemed to have a, a very deep desire not to be famous. Fame wasn't what she was looking for. It was acceptance. It was love. It was a place in yeah. the world. There's a very haunting uh, part in it where there's a, a bit of dialogue played. I don't know which interview it came from where she talks about, um, every time I see a woman, I see mummy. Every time I see a man, I see daddy. And so it's really, one of the things this documentary reveals is that Marilyn Monroe was actually very open in interviews. These aren't like private recorded conversations. These are actually taken from like archival interview footage and things. She wasn't shy about coming forward about the fact that actually underneath she wasn't very happy. And that lends it this quality because you obviously you know where it's going to go in the end. You know Marilyn Monroe, you know, everybody knows Marilyn Monroe died in tragic circumstances. It's got this sort of wistful quality to the piece that I found quite haunting. And it's an interesting tone for it to strike. I mean... I don't really know who this documentary is made for. If you're looking for salacious details, they're certainly in there. But it seems far more concerned at coming from a journalistic bent of going, let's speak to the actual people that knew her and try and sift through you know, who's biased, who's not, that kind of thing. It's trying to maintain a level of, I guess, distance from its subject, whilst at the same time being careful not to glorify her, but trying to show her as ultimately a human being that the rest of the world treated as an object which you know, obviously has some real parallels for everything going on in modern times with the modern feminism, the Me Too movement, all that kind of stuff. In fact, one of the first things it starts out with is the casting couch process and how that worked back in the 30s, 40s and 50s, which is very, very revealing. I find it a really interesting and compelling piece. It's a little dry, I have to say. It's about an hour and 41 minutes long. And towards the end in particular, it sort of starts to tangle itself in knots because there is, well, there are so many knots to be quite honest. Yeah. You know, it kind of can't help that, going, be, trying to be as objective as it can be. But I thought ultimately, it's it's a sad piece. It's a almost heartbreaking at points piece. And it's 
thought-provoking in relation to the modern aspects of fame and how, in a way, we're all sort of challenged by fame these days and the Instagram, Snapchat, et cetera, et cetera, modern generation. It's got some modern relevance at the end of it as well. So yeah, interesting piece of work. I don't think you're going to get a lot of fun out of it, but I liked its tone. I liked what it was trying to achieve. And I liked that it was going for, it was going down the middle with its subject. And I appreciated that. So it's a good piece of work overall. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, she is a very fascinating figure. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, I might check that out if I've got a spare hundred minutes. Yeah, it's it's an interesting watch. I was I was compelled by it definitely. Mm. And the second thing I want to talk about this week, this is the docu series. Uh, this is also about tapes and uncovered tapes. Um, however, with a very very different subject. Do you remember uh, a million years ago? It feels like now. I reviewed Conversations with a Killer, the Ted Bundy tapes. Yes. Well, there has been a new one. And it's Conversations with a Killer, the John Wayne Gacy tapes. Oh, lovely. Yes, <laughs> a lovely subject indeed. Now, I know serial killers are a particular interest of yours, a particular interest of just about everybody, I think, at this point. Serial killer docs go down very, very well. I've reviewed a million of them, I think. Well, you know, they are fascinating entities. They are indeed. One of the things I liked about the Ted Bundy tapes was that it tried to be an all-encompassing and comprehensive look at why Ted Bundy came to be, what he did, how he got caught, and his final end. And so it ends up being this very self-contained piece, but told primarily through the narrative device of having these unheard, untold tapes coming through, people who interviewed him, his real voice speaking. He almost acts as a narrator in his own documentary, if you like, whilst staying at a level that means that you can listen to what he says, but the documentary is very quick to condemn and point out where the egotism and the narcissism comes in. Sure, yeah. This is exactly what the John Wayne Gacy tapes are doing. The documentary is so very, very careful to contrast the man's egotism, the man's evilness, the man's self-centeredness with you know, what he's actually saying on these tapes and the victims, the relatives of the victims, police reports, police who interviewed him, all sort of filling in the gaps and going, yeah, he might say that, but we've got this, 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 and the other. And once again, it works in a really, really comprehensive fashion. It's a three-parter. They're all about an hour long each. And one thing that I took away from the Ted Bundy tapes is you kind of don't need another Ted Bundy documentary because it covers everything. And you've got the real person himself gets to say his piece and you've got people that are then be able to slap back on that and go, yeah, but the guy was a dickhead and here is why. This is exactly the same. Obviously, I condemn the works of Ted Bundy. <laughs> and I'm about to condemn the works of John Wayne Gacy as well. But yeah, I mean, John Wayne Gacy was an interesting guy. Of course, he was the killer clown. Yeah. And he was very, very much respected by his community. He was like a local enforcement officer, sort of a, a semi-policeman almost. If yeah. you're a little old lady that needed your light bulbs changed, you could call up an organization and John Wayne Gacy of all people <laughs> would come around your house until, um, well, things were discovered underneath his house, shall we say, without going into spoilers if you are unfamiliar with the story. I kind of hope that people listening are unfamiliar with the story. I'm sure they know the name. I'm sure they've perhaps seen a photo of him dressed up as a clown because it's a horrifying thing. I'm sure people, because it's such a part of the... Uh, I don't know, the cultural tapestry, if you like. Just the name alone is enough. People go, oh, you, you mean the serial killer? I don't know much about him, but I know he was horrible and he did this and he did that. I mean, John Wayne Gacy was, of course, one of the most prolific 
as well. Yeah. And the gradual, ever-evolving horror is a big theme of this piece. As I said, it's a three-parter. It goes through something of his upbringing, something of his early life, um, how he got himself into trouble initially, why he eventually got uh, put on the police radar through a particular case. It was one of his last cases, hopefully his last case, where the police finally cottoned onto him and started to uncover all the things that came after that. And then, of course, you're going into his trial, incarceration, and the rest of it. And once again, it's I, I love these. I think these are so, so well done. I think they stand up against all the other serial killer documentaries and kind of make them look a little bit, I don't know, under-researched. You remember when I was reviewing some uh, Discovery Plus stuff quite a few months ago now? Mm -hmm. And going like, the Discovery Plus documentaries, they're not necessarily bad, but they kind of come across as a little bit lightweight, a little bit hokey. These, in particular, this Conversation with a Killer series, I think are so good at getting across exactly what you need to know whilst ultimately condemning it, whilst using a ton of archive footage, most of which I'd never seen before. And I was very familiar with John Wayne Gacy's story. I've seen other documentaries and things. This sort of acts as almost like a last will and testament to the story. You don't need to see anything else after this. Yeah, obviously you can do your own research if you like, and I always encourage you know, looking around a documentary rather than just focusing on it. But if you just want something comprehensive, if you want something to really get across exactly what happened and the significance of it, these programs work really, really well. I would like to see them done for more and more serial killers, I think, because they sort of run rings around the competition and they strike the right tone. And I think that's very, very impressive. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sounds fascinating. Yeah, I, I got a lot out of it, even knowing a lot of the uh, the John Wayne Gacy stuff, and I knew a lot about Ted Bundy before uh, his time on the show. I guess <laughs> you can say um, there's still there's, there are the archive footage alone and the interviews alone, and hearing them try and uh, you know, rationalize their behavior adds so much more to the story. It enriches it without making it salacious. And I think that's a very clever balance to strike. They're very, very good programs. Mm. So please, even with all your back knowledge on serial killers, and I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this going, oh yeah, I listen to a true crime podcast. I know about this guy. Watch the documentary anyway, because it it brings it to vivid life in all the ways you would hope a, a good piece would do. Cool. Yeah, really, really good stuff. Okay then, well, I'm going to get on some trivia. Uh, I haven't done John Wayne Gacy. <laughs> Because, well, you know, <laughs> we have done serial killers it's a bit, before. It's a bit grim. Yeah, it ends up being a little bit dark. It ends up being a little bit, you know, <laughs> you like to try and finish on a high. So, I mean, this is a dark story regardless, as I just pointed out, but I thought I'd do some Marilyn Monroe trivia instead. Yeah. yeah. Because, as you said, she's a very, very interesting woman. Let's start off with this one. As a child, Norma Jean Baker, originally spelled as Norma Jean, J-E-A-N-E, was in and out of foster homes, state care, and the guardianship of various family friends. She never knew her father, and her mother had been committed to a psychiatric facility. A 15-year-old baker had been staying with family friend Grace Goddard, but they decided to move to West Virginia and couldn't take her. Unless she married, the teenager would have been turned back over to an orphanage. So they suggested to 20-year-old James Doherty, who lived next door, to suggest a marriage match. I thought she was awful young, he later said. But we talked and we got on pretty good. They were married just 18 days after she turned 16. Wow. I'd never heard that at all. Yeah. Yeah, it's a real tragic beginning, I think. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's fucked up, man. And the documentary does such a good job as well of, of um, getting across that being passed from pillar to post thing. Is you know, she wasn't Modern celebrities essentially seem to be drawn like moths to the flame of fame. 
Whereas it was more for her about being uh, being accepted, having people like her, love her, adore her, etc. Yeah, I think there's a I think there's a big difference there between seeking fame and seeking acceptance. Yeah, you know? I mean, well, yeah, there is a very um, there's a deep sadness to um, the latter. Yeah, absolutely. whereas the former, you know, you just people who are just explicitly all about the fame, nonsense, and that, and they're just absolute dickheads. So. Yeah, yeah, she doesn't strike me as a narcissist. No. Nah. John Wayne Gacy did. <laughs> yeah, just a tad. Yeah. <laughs> I said I was going to compare and contrast, didn't I? There you go. Monroe was the maiden name of Marilyn Monroe's mother. Baker chose Monroe as a surname because it was her mother's maiden name. In her ghost-written autobiography, Monroe said she was told that she was somehow related to President James Monroe, but no evidence has ever been found to support that. Marilyn came from a studio executive who thought she resembled Marilyn Miller, an actress who died at the age of 37. Monroe was 36 when she passed away. Fuck. It's a weird coincidence. Yeah, isn't it? yeah. It's kind of creepy that. I'm sure there's some Marilyns that made it to 103, you know. <laughs> Marilyn Monroe often referred to Marilyn Monroe in the third person. Actor Eli Wallach once recalled that Monroe seemed to flip an inner switch and turn Marilyn on and off. He had been walking on Broadway with her one evening, totally incognito, and the next minute she was swarmed with attention. I just felt like being Marilyn for a minute, she said. Photographer Sam Shaw often heard her critiquing Marilyn's performances in movies or at photo shoots, making comments like, she wouldn't do this. Marilyn wouldn't say that. Well, so I mean, like, she just sort of, she sees herself basically as, um, you know, like what, what, what we perceive her as, she saw that as essentially her alter ego. Yeah, seems you know, to be. There's a shocking bit in the piece where it shows some footage of her uh, being mobbed by photographers outside a building. And uh, the, the guy actually points out that it looks like, you know, the classic film star leaving a restaurant or a studio and the photographers are mobbing her. She was actually, the building behind her was a hospital. And she was being let out after a rehab treatment program for um, sleeping pill abuse. But she instantly turns on the Marilyn thing. She had the, it was like a front, a defense. She, all of a sudden, it's the smile and the glittering eyes and the, the tilted head and all that kind of stuff. She seems to be able to turn it on and off like a switch. Fuck, man. Yeah. Marilyn Monroe was well-read. Monroe's bookshelf was exceedingly impressive. At the time of her death, she owned more than 400 volumes, including several first editions. Of the thousands of photographs taken of her, she was especially fond of ones that showed her reading. When a director once found her reading R.M. Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet, he asked her how she chose it. On nights when I've got nothing else to do, I go to the Pickwick bookstore on Hollywood Boulevard, she told him, and I just open books at random. Or when I come to a page or a paragraph I like, I buy that book. So last night I bought this one. Is that wrong? Ugh. She was a bibliophile. Yeah, yeah. I like the idea of buying <clears throat> books. I often buy books by the cover. That's the thing. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who, you know, lamentably sort of, they think of Marilyn Monroe as, you know, essentially being an airheaded blonde, mm. you know, like she... Obviously- it was a role she played even in, in public life. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. But, um, well, I mean, that this thing, you know, like wanting acceptance, I mean, usually that comes with a, that deep-seated desire for acceptance, a sort of like melancholic desire for it. Is usually fueled by um, a, a strong dose of uh, introspection, yeah, and the like, you know. And usually, the you know people who uh, lean towards that, you know, tend to uh, r- ruminate a lot. 
So, yeah, I mean, it, made, I mean, it kind of makes sense, actually. It's just a shame that, um, you know, even though it advanced her career, people, yeah, a lot of people just thought that she was some sort of dumbass, but it sounds like she was actually very far from that. So Yeah, and she, she was drawn to intellectuals as well. I mean, famously, she married Arthur Miller, yeah, yeah. a famous playwright. She seemed to be drawn towards intellect. She wanted to learn and expand herself and, uh, and become more than she was, which is always an admirable goal, isn't it? Well, absolutely, yeah. It's better than the stereotypical bad boy horse shit. So. yeah. Speaking of which, Joe DiMaggio is coming up. <laughs> now, this is a this is a weird one. This I had to put this in, but it's bleh, it makes me feel something dirty. So I feel like I need a shower after this one. So I do apologize, but I think it's interesting. After her death, Monroe was buried at Westwood Village Memorial Park Cemetery in Los Angeles. Joe DiMaggio originally owned the crypt above hers, but sold it when they divorced. The buyer was Richard Poncher a fan who requested that he be flipped over when he was buried so he could lay face down on top of Monroe for eternity. Though his wife obliged the request, she changed her mind in 2009 and put the plot up for sale on eBay. It was bought for a whopping $4.6 million, but the buyer later backed out. Hugh Hefner famously purchased the plot right next to hers. Though she graced the first cover of Playboy, the two never met. I feel a double connection to her because she was the launching key to the beginning of Playboy, he said. When Hefner died in 2017, he was buried in the plot he bought for $75,000 in 1992. Weird. Really weird. I, how creepy is that to buy the plot above hers and request it be buried face down so that you're always on top of her? That just makes me feel... Ugh. What a... Weird cunt. <laughs> well, it's just, I mean, it's disrespectful. I call, I call Deb, Ted Bundy a dickhead. I, think it's, I, th- <laughs> well, I just think it's, it's just very disrespectful. Yeah, it it's is. It's just weird and unseemly, and it just sounds like an absolute freak. Like a, a really dodgy necrophilia. Joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What the fuck yeah. is wrong with you, arsehole? Uh, my last piece here, just, you know, I like to finish off with something funny, and yes. I had to find something slightly funny. Something with light this. and breezy. According to Shelley Winters, Marilyn Monroe wasn't much of a cook. Winter says she once asked the actress to wash lettuce so they could have salad for dinner. When she walked into the kitchen, Winters found Monroe washing each individual lettuce leaf with a Brillo pad. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Maybe yeah. she was just taking the piss. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I guess it fits into the Marilyn was ditzy stereotype, but I do like the idea of, oh, wash the lettuce. Oh, I've never done that before. I guess you, you know, <laughs> put your marigolds on and you give it a good damn scrub, don't you? Very liquid. Yeah. Yeah, yeah this salad tastes weird. Isn't it? <laughs> Strange sort of foamy dressing. Yeah. <laughs> anyways, anyways, yes, that brings us to the end of our free podcast this week. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we're going to go and record the premium now, as usual. This week, uh, Liam's going to kick us off with, have you got a couple of extra takes or just the one this week? I've remember. got a couple of extra takes and then, yeah, the latter extra take um, would just sort of lead us into this week's theme. Yeah, we're doing uh, what I have snappily entitled Critical Mistakes, which are films that had an absolute mauling from critics that we actually think have more merit than the critics originally suggested. Yeah, and I think, you know, one or two of these might have brought them up uh, before in premium as underrated offerings. But yeah, I mean, I've, I've thrown a few together that, you know, some of them are quite popular, some of them are you know, not that well known, but they just got, you know, critical evisceration. And, and they're, they're just examples where I think, like, that is just patently unfair and off base. So... Yeah. yeah, I think it's going to be quite an interesting subject this week. I've got a, quite a few of those as well. So yes, as usual, if you'd like to listen to any of that, please do check out cinementalist.com for a link to our Patreon page. You can follow us on Twitter at Cinementalcast and you can follow Liam at... Liam at the movies at Wacko Jacko's Flicks. 
Lovely. Anything else to add, matey? As always, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. We really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, just uh, keep on rocking and having a good time. Absolutely. What a nice, yeah, cheery message to end on. I feel like we've been very cheery this week. I'd try. (laughs) (laughs) By our standards. (laughs) All right, guys. Hope to see you on the premium, if not next week. Take it easy.